if you, it'll help you follow along with the sermon if you keep your Bibles open to the book of Jonah. And if you look into your bulletin, you should be able to find a loose sheet. That's the sermon outline in your bulletin. You can check that out. That would give you a skill as to where we're heading this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Today at Christ the King, we celebrate World Mission Sunday. And what exactly is World Mission Sunday? Let's hear it from the Archbishop of our province, Archbishop Folly Beach himself. And I quote, As a province, we have set aside a day early in our calendar year to highlight the Great Commission to reach our neighbours both locally and globally with the saving message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. End quote. So it's a day when we are reminded to proclaim the Gospel both within and beyond our shores. It's about obeying the Great Commission and making disciples of all nations. And so how then should we obey the Great Commission? I thought what might be helpful for us this morning for change is to think about someone who didn't. Someone who would rather not proclaim God's word to the nations. We learn from positive examples. They tell us what we should do. And in the same way, we learn from negative examples as well. They tell us what we shouldn't do. And so let's, let's turn to the book of Jonah. And if you haven't found it already, it's, uh, it's the book that's just before Micah and after Obadiah. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> okay, we, we hope to cover the whole book of Jonah this morning, so let me warn you, it's going to feel a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant. I do believe Jonah is a book about mission. Specifically, it tells us about God's heartbeat for mission, for reaching out to the people who are lost. Sadly, it also tells us about the state of the human heart, our lack of love for our neighbours. And here's what I'd like to do this morning. Our sermon this morning will be a response to three questions. Question one, what is the Jonah story about? And that's going to cover chapter one and three. Question two, why is chapter four here? Because if you know your book of Jonah, it would have been lovely if the book of Jonah ended in chapter three. So why chapter four? And then question number three, what can we learn from the story about Jonah? Let's dive in. Most of you know about the story of Jonah, and if you're like me, you probably learn about Jonah and the whale in Sunday school when you're young. And it's one of those nice stories that keep you coming back for more each week. Well, if that's your recollection of Jonah, I have to say, firstly, that the Bible never said it was a whale. We're just told it's a big fish, right? And secondly, the big fish was really very incidental to the whole story because God could have used a big bird and it wouldn't have changed the essence of the story one bit. So it's not really about the whale. Sorry about that. Right at the start of the book, at chapter 1, we are told Jonah, king of, son of Amittai, was a prophet. And we know that from 2 Kings, chapter 14, if you want to turn to it, it's on page 182 of your Bible. And large screen Bible is 354. Page 354 in the large screen Bible. But told in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 27, that Jonah was around during the time of King Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. And Jonah must have been a national hero at this point. Why? Because, you see, Jonah's previous mission from God was to encourage King Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, to extend his territories beyond where it was, and the king obeyed. 
And in fact, he successfully carried out the message that Jonah delivered. And so Israel's national boundaries expanded considerably. Well, that's background to uh, Jonah. Now, back to the book of Jonah. Now, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, we see Jonah getting an admission from God. And the word of God came to Jonah saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for that evil has come up before me. God calls Jonah to preach against Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians. Jonah is to preach to his enemies, the Assyrians. And if you know a little bit of your history, the Assyrians were merciless and savage people. Their army was ruthless. They were well known for burning cities wholesale, burning children, impaling their victims on stakes, behaving, chopping off hands. And so what does Jonah do when he gets this mission? Well, he got up and he ran instead to the seaside town of Joppa and got a ticket to board a ship bound for Tashish. Now, Tashish was the west of where Jonah was. In fact, it was probably the westernmost point of the known world then. Somewhere uh, in the southwest of Spain, probably. And Nineveh, where God had told Jonah to go, was in the east. So Jonah was doing the exact opposite of what God was asking him. And in fact, Jonah was fleeing from God. So Jonah boards the ship, goes down to the lower deck of the ship to sleep. And in the meantime, the ship set sail, and God sends a terrible storm. And soon the pagan sailors were doing all they could just to keep the ship afloat. And they were throwing out their cargo into the ship to lighten the ship and praying to their gods to save them. And the captain found Jonah fast asleep and woke him up. And then they cast lots among themselves to find a culprit for the storm. And the lot fell on Jonah. And the sailors questioned him who he was, what he did, where he was from. And he tells them. And he confessed that he was running away from God. And this made the sailors even more afraid. And Jonah tells them to throw him into the sea to quieten down the storm. And to the credit of the sailors, they refused. And they rode even harder to try to get back to dry land. But to no avail. And finally, giving up, they cried out to the Lord, to Jonah's God to Yahweh, asking for forgiveness and not to be punished even as they threw Jonah overboard. And immediately, once Jonah was overboard, the storm ceased. And these pagan sailors feared Yahweh and offered a sacrifice to Jonah's God. But God was not done with Jonah. In fact, at this point in time, he appointed a fish, a big fish, to swallow Jonah. We see that in chapter 1, verse 17. And Jonah remained in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And from the belly of the fish, Jonah prays a prayer of gratitude to God for saving him. We find his prayer in chapter 2. And in fact, you can look it up. And right at the end of his prayer, in, in chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And with that, God spoke to the fish to vomit 
Jonah out on dry land. God was giving Jonah a second chance. And in chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah again saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this time around, Jonah obeyed, and he made that 600-mile journey to Nineveh. And traversing the city of Nineveh for three days, Jonah called out to all of them, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You see that in chapter 3, verse 4. And guess what? Most unexpectedly, the people of Nineveh repented. And there was a revival. The Ninevites believed Jonah's message, and they put on a sackcloth, and they fasted. And so did the king. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes and fasted. And he issued an order for everyone, including the animals, to fast and to repent of their evil ways and call out to the Lord. And God heard them. And he saw their repentance and he relented <coughs> from destroying them. The city of Nineveh was saved. And with that we come to the end of chapter 3. And you know what? This would have been a great ending to the story. <laughs> You can almost imagine the headlines in a local newspaper than the Nineveh Times, right? Prophet preaches destruction, Nineveh repents, and God relents. And this would have been a high point of Jonah's career. He would have been the greatest prophet. He preaches and over 120,000 people are saved. The greatest city of the known world listens to Jonah's message and was saved from destruction. Now, every prophet would love to have that on their resume. But that was not so. Because in chapter 4, verse 1, we are told, that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah was angry because the city of Nineveh was saved. So why is chapter 4 here? Like I said, it would have been a lovely fairy tale ending if we stopped at chapter 3. I think chapter 4 is necessary because I believe, in fact, it's probably the most important chapter in the book. What we see in chapter 4 is that it reveals Jonah's heart. And more important, it reveals God's heart. And we are meant to see the contrast. See, what caused Jonah to go off into a rant? And it was a disgraceful rant. Look at chapter 4 verse 2. The kind of rant that you expect from a sport bread, not from, 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 not from prophet. Let me read it to you again. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? And that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah reveals his heart clearly here. He was not interested in saving Nineveh and her people. He would rather die, in fact, than to see them saved. He had no interest at all in bringing them salvation. And he wanted God's judgment to be upon them. The Syrians were wicked people, yes. And they deserved to be punished. And deserved to be destroyed. And Jonah hated them. He was essentially an extreme nationalist. There was no love in Jonah's heart for the Ninevites. His body may well be in Nineveh, but his heart was definitely not there. And as far as Jonah was concerned, the Ninevites did not deserve God's mercy. 
Can you see it? Can you see the hypocrisy? Jonah was quick to forget his own disobedience. He disobeyed God and, and ran away, and yet he seemed to think that he deserved God's mercy. And he turned back to 2 Kings chapter 14. We read that the king of Israel, the king, king Jeroboam II, he did evil in the sight of God. He made Israel sin. And yet the next verses tell us how God spoke through Jonah and helped Israel restore their borders from Labor Hamad in the north, that's way out to Syria, to as far as the Sea of Arabah, which is the Dead Sea in the south. And why did God do that? Because we're told in chapter 14, verse 26 of 2 Kings, because the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, born or free, and there was none to help Israel. You see, Israel was evil, thanks to the king, and yet God showed mercy and helped her. But Jonah seems to think that his people, his nation, deserved God's mercy, but not the Ninevites. And there the prejudice of Jonah's heart is laid bare. He's happy for God's mercy to be shown to him despite his disobedience. He's happy for God's mercy to be shown to his nation despite their evil deeds. But he doesn't want God's mercy to be shown to foreign nations, especially not to the Ninevites. Make no mistake about this. The issue here is not knowledge, because Jonah knows his theology. He knows the character of his God, a gracious God who is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And he knows that salvation from God is by grace. And because of that, no one deserves it. And that's why when he prayed from the belly of the fish, he said, salvation belongs to God. But Jonah's theology hasn't sunk into his heart. It hasn't penetrated into the inner recesses of his heart. It stayed merely in his head. And so we're told he left the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself, a sort of shade over his head. You see, he wanted to see what would become of the city of Nineveh. He was probably hoping to see some fireworks, maybe something like what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah when God brought judgment by raining down sulfur and fire from heaven. And here is where God decided He would help Jonah to see how warped his heart was. God appointed a plant, possibly a castor oil plant, which had broad leaves to grow over Jonah and to provide a shade over his head and to save him from discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But the next morning, God appointed a worm to attack the plant, to kill it. And then God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And our pouting and petulant prophet complained, it is better for me to die than to live. And this was where God challenged him, saying, do you do well to be angry for the plant? This plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And Jonah answered, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <coughs> then God pressed home the point, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know 
their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Can you see what a contrast? Jonah is more concerned about the momentary well-being of a plant than the eternal well-being of a city of 120,000 people who needed to be saved. Talk about misplaced priorities. It's so easy to get something so basic wrong, isn't it, when our heart's not right. Jonah's prejudices were clouding his, his perceptions and his priorities. And you know what God did after this? More than 700 years later, God would send another Jonah, the true Jonah, his son, Jesus Christ. Jonah had to leave his comfort zone to a hostile land called Nineveh. And like Jonah, Jesus left his ultimate comfort zone in heaven to a hostile world. But unlike Jonah, Jesus came to this world willingly. And unlike Jonah, he would be killed and crucified by his, the very people that he came to proclaim God's word. Jonah didn't love the people he came to save, but Jesus had compassion for them and died on a cross for them. And on a cross outside the city, Jesus asked God to forgive those who killed him. But Jonah waited outside the city to see if God would kill those that he would, he would not forgive. In Mark chapter 4, we read about an incident where, like Jonah, Jesus was in a boat with his disciples. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. And while all this was happening, what was Jesus doing? Like Jonah, he was asleep in the boat. And like the sailors in the ship to Tarshish, Jesus' disciples in panic woke him up to say, they were perishing. I like how one author puts this incident in its context. He said, the big difference in the two incidents is that Jonah was thrown only in a storm of wind and water. But Jesus on the cross, however, was thrown into the ultimate storm of all the divine justice and punishment that we deserve for our wrongdoing. You see, God loves the great cities of this world in a way that Jonah would not. God loves the city of this world so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the true Jonah, to come to call out against them and to proclaim a way of salvation through his death on the cross. You can't find a greater contrast between the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, and the true Jonah, Jesus Christ, son of God. And so what can we learn from the story about Jonah? In particular, given that today is World Mission Sunday, what can Jonah teach us? I think there are two levels to appropriate the lessons of Jonah, at a church level and at an individual level. At a church level, we need to ask ourselves as a church, if you are sleeping while the rest of the world around us is perishing, do we as a church recognize the peril that our society, our community here are facing? Do we hear the call of God to go and proclaim the gospel to our neighbors here in Chinatown, in the universities? And do we love enough and care enough to do something about it? What about places beyond our shores? Do we care that many still have not heard the gospel in the remote areas of Myanmar, Tibet, Iran, and Pakistan? 
Or are we as a church in danger of being too busy, too distracted by programs, too interested in highfalutin doctrines, that we are not directing our efforts towards the proclamation of the gospel, towards making disciples, and towards equipping our members for evangelism and discipleship? I ask these questions not because I think Christ the King is guilty of any of these, but rather to remind ourselves that they need to be asked from time to time. And having thought about these questions this past week, I'm happy to be able to say that I do believe from the bottom of my heart that Christ the King as a church is very aware of its responsibility to proclaim the gospel faithfully, both near and far. You will hear a report from Pam later on about how we're supporting those proclaiming the gospel within and beyond our shores. Is there more that we can do? Certainly. And we hope in the course of the year ahead, we will be able to do more. At the individual level, do we hear God's call to move out of our comfort zone, to share the gospel with our neighbor, whether it's someone in our family, our school, our workplace, our community? And if God is calling us, are we running away from it? Because we prefer the safety and the comfort of our regular routines. Who are our Ninevites? Who are the neighbors that God has placed in our lives to reach out to? But we prefer to avoid and we rather keep a comfortable distance. And might it be that our reticence in sharing the gospel is because on surface we may appear as if we tick all the boxes. We know all the theology of mission, but like Jonah, that knowledge hasn't quite sunk into the very core of our hearts. Or perhaps we feel inadequate. We feel we're not able to effectively share the gospel. God can't be calling me. I don't know how to do it. You know, I'm just so challenged by the number of times that we see the word appointed in the book of Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 17, God appointed a big fish to swallow up Jonah. In chapter 4, verse 6, He appointed the plant to grow over Jonah. 4, verse 7, He appointed a worm to attack the plant. 4, verse 8, He appointed a scorching east wind. What am I trying to say here? God can appoint anything and anyone to do His will. But for reasons totally incomprehensible to us, He appoints each one of us sinful humans to share the gospel. In fact, He gave us a command to go and make disciples. The question for each one of us here is, how will we respond? Let me conclude. I love where we meet as a church here at Crimson Keys. As I sit in front here each week, I face a portrait of six unnamed individuals staring back at me, lips closed. I like the Macedonian in Paul's vision in Acts 16 who could call out to him in his vision to come over to Macedonia. These faces stay silent. They are without a voice and their look betray a sense of lostness, a stoic and grim desperation, unable to articulate what they need. And I think of God's question to Jonah, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And then I look out through the window here, and I see the world go by. Now and then we see the streetcar pass. We see the cars and motorcycles whizzing through. Pedestrians walking by us, sometimes looking into the church, wondering what we're doing here. All of them oblivious to the impending judgment that will ultimately come one day, that they will have to face their maker one day. And then I think of God's message to Nineveh. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Chapter 4 ends with a question. God is essentially asking Jonah, will you love this city as much as I do? And look at all of us gathered here at Christ the King. God's representative here on earth, here in Toronto. And I hear God's charge to Jonah and to us. Arise, go to Toronto, that great city, and call out against it. Last Sunday evening, some of you may have watched the Super Bowl. This year it was between New England Patriots and the Philadelphia Eagles. And a couple of days before the Super Bowl, the Washington Post ran an article entitled, In a Tough Sports Town, Baptism and Bible Studies Fill Many of the Eagles' Stars. And let me read a portion of the article, and here's how it starts, and I quote, Cousin Wen, quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles, wants you to tune in on Super Bowl Sunday. Before that, he'd like to visit your church. And then here the article goes on to quote Castle Wen, the quarterback, in a promotional video. And I quote, If you are a pastor anywhere in the world who's looking to impact the people in your community, please consider having me and other NFL players into your church this Super Bowl weekend. I promise you will be something God uses to transform the people you are called to serve and I believe for all eternity. End quote. And then the Washington Post article goes on to say, Went and several members of the Eagles team are among a number of NFL players appearing in a video. It is scheduled to be shown to thousands of churches on Sunday, the day the Eagles face the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. End quote. Well, as it turns out, the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl on Sunday. So you see, good guys do finish last. Don't always finish last. <laughs> and in their interview after the game, the coach and the players gave glory to God for seeing them through the season and the game. It was a tough season for them. All this right before an estimated audience of 110 million people. 110 million people were watching the game that night. And you know what I thought was most cool about the whole thing? Somebody videoed the speech that a coach gave the players in the locker room after they had won. And when the coach finished, they all knelt down in the locker room to say the Lord's Prayer. How about that? What a wonderful testimony. People doing exactly what they normally do. In this case, playing football and pointing others to Jesus in the process. Now, you and I, 
may not be able to give glory to God before an audience of 110 million people. Maybe you can. <coughs> I know I won't. But as much we can do and say on a day-to-day basis to point people around us to the saving message of, our, of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when that opportunity comes, let us not be found on a boat bound for Tarshish. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.